You'll recall that we began James a couple of weeks ago. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes a small book, but many agree that it's the most practical book in the New Testament. James began a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at it, dealing with the most difficult problem for all believers, and it's the problem of trials. Why do we go through trials? And we took a couple of weeks, and we looked at that. Why do we go through them, and then how do we navigate through them? But today, James is going to take the next most difficult situation for all of us as believers. It's also the oldest problem for everyone who would be a believer, and it's the problem of temptation. Have you ever asked yourself, well, let me just ask another question before that. Um, Is there anybody here who ever finds themselves being tempted in any way? Am I the only one? Okay, so so a couple of us, that's good. Few people are very honest, few people are in denial, but uh, we'll, we'll take it where we are. But have you ever asked yourself, why is it that I'm still tempted? I mean, I thought when I became a believer that all of a sudden temptation would go away. I would have a new power, which we do, but I would never, want, I would never again deal with these temptations. I thought that, that by this time in my life that some of those temptations would just go away. Well, today, James is going to deal very practically with the issue of temptation. Now there on your outline, I want to just point out a few things. As we've been traveling through, you'll notice that in the box, I placed James chapter 1, verse 2. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but you notice he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And we looked at that a few weeks ago, but you notice that in the original language, the word for trials is periazzo. Now, that's, that doesn't really mean a whole lot to you, but I want you to notice the next verse, and that's the verse that we're going to look at today. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. And again, that word for tempted in the Greek is simply periazzo. The word tempted and trials are the same word in the Greek. Yet in English, we have two words, so it kind of splits out, and, and uh, we use them a little bit differently. So here's how you know. And you want to write this down. Here's what differentiates. God tests us or allows trials to come into our life to make us strong. Go ahead and write that down. And yet Satan comes to make us, or Satan tempts us to make us do wrong. And so today, James is going to deal with man's oldest problem. This is man's oldest problem. If you've ever heard the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, certainly the first problem that they dealt with was the problem of temptation. We pick it up in verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, and here's what it says. Let no one say, and I want you to underline the word when. Let no one say when he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, I want you to notice that James says when you are tempted, not if you are tempted. If he said if you are tempted, then that would mean that maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But he doesn't say that. He says when you are tempted. Here's what he's saying. Very simply, that temptations are just going to be part of our life. Part of our life. Is that a surprise to anybody so far? So here's the first thing that we need to do. When he says When you are tempted, here's the first thing that we need to do. And you want to write this down. Very simply, we need to be realistic. We need to be realistic. You see, one of the great misconceptions is that when we become a believer, or as we grow up, or as we mature in our faith, that we would have less temptation. We wouldn't have to deal with temptations any longer. And and we ask ourselves, and we say, why is it that I still have to deal with these temptations? How could I have all of these temptations? And James would say to us, you know, we're all in the same boat. Every one of us is going to be tempted. And if you're like me, I grew up in a Christian environment where we were taught that if you were more spiritual, then you wouldn't have temptation. Now, here's what I've found as I've continued to grow in the Lord. I've found that temptation is just part of, part of life. 
I mean, haven't we all thought that? If I were just a little bit more spiritual, then I wouldn't deal with these temptations. And you grow in your relationship with the Lord a little bit more, and what do you find? Still deal with temptations. Okay, am I the only one who does that? <laughs> Every one of us, right? And so in, in, in my life, growing up in the church, and I grew up in a wonderful church background, but I thought that growing up, that on the day that I got married, all temptation would cease. And it did. Right, guys? And here, here's the, the thing that happens. You realize that although you love somebody, you still find that there are those times when you experience temptation, the very thing that you thought would never happen again. And then we think that we're the only ones who ever really struggle with these temptations. We don't think anybody really goes through what we go through as it relates to temptation, but Paul would say this. Notice there in your outline, Paul would say, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is, and I want you to underline, common to man. So here's what he's saying. Don't be shocked by your struggles. Don't be shocked by the fact that you're still tempted. By, that you're still tempted. Temptation is not a sin. It's just part of life. Everyone is tempted. Everyone, even Jesus. Notice, notice there in your outline when Jesus was on the earth, it says Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, recognizing that we will be tempted, yet without sin. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are? I mean, you, you get the sense that there, there might have been some gal that came up to Jesus and just told him he was the most wonderful thing and how she could just see herself with a man like him and uh, it wasn't really part of God's calling in his life, but it was a temptation to him. Have you ever pondered that? That he was tempted by everything that you and I have ever been tempted by? Well, not only that, so when we look at temptation, the reality is that we all have temptations, we all have struggles. Temptation itself is not a sin, but what we do with that temptation is where it becomes a sin. Temptation simply proves one thing, and you want to write this down, it simply proves that we are human. Simply proves that we are human. If someone says that they are never tempted... A man who will lie to you about that will lie to you about other things. When 20 years ago, I pastored in a church in Ohio and the senior pastor used to say, I no longer deal with temptation. It just rolls off my back. It's not even a temptation. I've achieved the place where it doesn't even bother me. I can counsel women. I can spend time. It never bothers me, on and on and on. And we believed it right up until the point where he left his wife and three, three sons for a 19-year-old girl in our church. The man says that he has no temptation. He will lie to you about other things. Okay? And so, so everybody is going to be tempted. If someone says they no longer experience temptation, it does not mean that they are spiritual. It only means that they are dead. <laughs> so the first thing that we need to do as uh, we look at this, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So number one, I need to be realistic, but number two, I need to be responsible. I need to be responsible. He says, God cannot tempt anyone. 
We live in a society that loves to blame other people. We blame our parents. We blame society. Uh, we, we, we blame just anybody that we can, our environment, whatever it is. And ultimately, we find ourselves blaming God. And we say things like, well, you see, I'm in this lifestyle and I'm living in this lifestyle because it's the way that God created me. Have you ever heard that argument? Here's what the Bible says. God says that he himself does not tempt anyone. And the idea is that God says you need to be responsible. He says, don't make bad decisions and blame it on me because I don't tempt anyone but we make those choices and we find ourselves in those sins. Does that make sense? So the next thing you notice there in your outline, the reality is that we're all tempted, but notice this verse on your outline. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now I had you underline that before. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, underline beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So God calls us to be responsible. God says, not only will I not tempt you, but I won't even allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So that no person can ever say that the temptation was too great. I I just couldn't hold myself back. So then the question is, who tempts us? Well, the Bible calls him Satan. The Bible calls him the devil. And Jesus said it like this on your outline. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So the question is then, what is the method that Satan uses in order to tempt us? Well, I'm going to say that the method that Satan uses is simply the word bait. Satan uses just the right bait to tempt us. Now, for those of you who've ever fished, you'll know that whenever you go fishing, you have to find a bait that is going to be appealing to the fish. Could we agree on that? And so if you're you're going to catch a fish, you're going to have to find something that's going to be appealing to that fish. And you want the fish to think that the bait is going to be fulfilling, it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be something that solves that deepest longing. You want to convince the fish that the bait is something that it is not. Agreed? And and for the bait to be appealing to the fish, it, it has to have certain characteristics. Now, I would just point to this fish And if I were going fishing, I would notice a few things about this fish that are probably appealing to another fish. First of all, I noticed the beautiful eyes. Do you see those? Aren't they pretty? And and the beautiful lips, very full there. And that's, it's, it's nice color. And you notice that the kind of just, the the tail kind of just wags as, as it goes by. And, and so this apparently would be somewhat fulfilling. And, and it's interesting because I look at this and I go, well, now, what is this made of? Is this, this a rubber or a plastic or what? Oh, silicone. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, apparently that's appealing to the fish. What? <laughs> now, here, here's what I know. This bait, if the fish is going to take it, has to be appealing. 
But in order for the fish to take the bait, I've got to hide the hook. Because if the fish sees the hook, the fish won't take the bait. But the fish that takes this bait is the fish that I will eat. Wouldn't you agree? And here's what Satan knows. Satan knows that when he brings temptation, he needs to custom make the temptation according to what it is that he wants to catch. You see, like any fisherman, any fisher person, however you'd want to say that, you know, depending on the fish that you want to catch, you have to tailor make the bait. This would catch one fish, but notice this is a fly, and it would catch an entirely different fish, an entirely different fish. So based upon the fish that I want to catch, I've got to use different bait. But here's the one thing. I've got to hide the hook in such a way that the fish doesn't see it, because if the fish sees the hook, the fish won't take the bait. Agreed? So then the question is, why does Satan want to do that? I mean, what's the big deal that he has to go out of his way to try to get you and I in temptation that ultimately will hook us and ruin our life? Why does he do that? I mean, why does he hate me? Well, just know it's not that he hates you personally. I mean, he certainly does. But you see, the thing with Satan is he hates God. And he knows that being God, there's nothing really that Satan can do that could actually hurt God The only thing that could really hurt God is to somehow destroy what it is that God loves the most. Now, as a dad, and for those of you who are parents, you get this. You get this. You see, in my life, if somebody were to take my car and they were to wreck the car, I'd be like, okay, it's a car. It's just metal. You know, it's destroyed. Okay, we'll get another one. That doesn't really bother me. If somebody were to hack into my bank account and they were to take my life savings, there's a part of me that says, hey, it's no big deal. If you need the $27.50, take it. (laughs) But here's the thing. If somebody were to, in some way, harm my children, which I love more than anything, in a way that hurt their life, if somebody molested my children, if somebody violated my children, that would be a way to hurt me in a way that I could not get over. Parents, would you agree? And would you agree, parents, that if you found that somebody did that to your child, it would wake up a rage inside of you, a wrath inside of you, that if somebody were to do that to your child, their best hope in this life would be to get to jail before you got to them. Now, where did that come from? That came from being created in the image of God. So it's not that Satan hates you personally. He does because God loves you. But he knows that that's the only way that he can hurt God is by doing something that will ultimately destroy your life. So Satan knows if he's going to catch the fish, you and I, he's going to have to tailor make the bait in such a way because he wants us to take that hook. So I need to be realistic. We're all going to be tempted. And then I need to be responsible. And then thirdly, we need to be ready. We pick it up in verse 14. And here's what he says. But each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own. And my Bible says lust. We'll come back and look at that. And when, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then he wraps up this whole paragraph by saying, verse 16, 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So I need to be ready. Notice what Paul would say there in your outline. Paul would say, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now underline schemes. A scheme is a plan of evil against you. He wants to bring the right bait so that you don't see the hook, so that he can hook you, so that he can destroy your life. Now, I put verse 14 there in your outline. I put verse 14 on your outline from the literal translation, and it says there, it says, and each one is tempted by his own desires. Now, my Bible would say lust, but literally the word is just desires. And it says being led away and enticed. So here's what Satan does. Satan brings our God-given desires and uses them against us. There's nothing wrong with desires. I mean, what would happen if all of a sudden today your God-given desire for thirst just went away? What would happen over the next three days? Well, in three days' time without that desire, you'd be dead. Well, what would happen if you just lost your desire for food for the next two weeks? What would happen? Well, for most of us, probably nothing. But what would happen? (laughs) But what would happen if you lost your desire for food for the next two months? If it wasn't for the desire for intimacy, procreation, sex, quite honestly, most of us wouldn't be here. Those are God-given desires. But here's what we need to understand, and you want to write this down. We need to understand that temptation is simply using our God-given desires desires in a God-forbidden way. Simply using our God-given desires in a God-forbidden way. The problem isn't with the desires. The problem is how we fulfill those desires. Now, I want you to notice the next verse on your outline. Uh, It's just part of a verse. It's from the literal translation, verse 14, and it says, being led away. Does everybody see that? Being led away. And here's what that tells us. And you want to write this down, that temptation is not an event, it's a process. Temptation is not an event, it's a process. It means to be let out, to lure out of safety. And Satan realizes that he needs to find the right bait in order to hook us. A good fisherman knows it's all about using the right bait for the right fish. And right now, I can tell you with absolute certainty that that Satan is studying what is the best bait that he can use to mess up your life. And right now, he's tying the right fly because he thinks and he plans to do something to hook us. Would you agree? And so here's what I would say. We need to be, we need to be ready for that temptation when it comes. Now, as you know, um, I'm not that preachy of a guy. I, I tend to teach, and uh, there are times when I, when I give my opinion, but for the most part, I just let the word speak for itself. But can I just apply this in a couple of different ways? Yes. There are times when there are just some things that you should and shouldn't do, and it's not out of legalism, it's just wisdom. It's just wisdom. So how, how do you be ready? Well, I would say don't place yourself in certain environments or situations where you can find yourself tempted. 
if I were dating, when Cheryl and I were dating, we realized that there were certain places that we couldn't be, and we realized that we couldn't be together too late in the evening. Uh, because as it's late in the evening, temptations, temptations come about, defenses go down. I mean, we agree on that, right? And you can imagine what kind of temptation she was under being around me. <laughs> well, that's so funny. <laughs> so, so we just decided we wouldn't stay together late at night watching a movie laying in our bed, laying in, laying in my bed or her bed. Why? Was it legalism? No, it's just... Don't be stupid. Don't place yourself in that environment. And I don't think it's wrong to have a glass of wine. I don't think it's wrong to have two glasses of wine. And there's times when Cheryl and I will certainly do that together. And and, and yet, as a dating couple, I would say be very, very careful because when you get together with somebody that you're dating and you introduce alcohol, defenses go down. And ladies, every guy knows that while candy is dandy, liquor is quicker. And so be ready. Don't place yourself in those environments. Does that make sense? So it's not legalism. It's just don't be stupid. Well, once again on your outline, you'll notice uh, James 1.14 from uh, the literal. It says, and each one is tempted by his own desires being led away and enticed. Now here's the next thing we know about temptation, that temptation involves timing. Temptation involves timing. Where does this fishing illustration come from? Well, I want you to notice the word enticed from the original language. I've put the definition straight from the Strong's Concordance. And here's, here's what it says. Enticed, the Greek word is deliazo. It means to bait or to lure or enticed. The idea is that it's James who is using a fishing term, a fishing illustration. And, and the devil knows all about timing, even for Jesus. Notice what it says. Jesus was tempted by the devil, and it says, and the devil, when he had finished every temptation, he left him until, underline, an opportune time. Jesus didn't take the bait. He didn't take the hook. And so Satan says, okay, I'll back off, but I'm not backing off forever. I'm waiting for an opportune time. There are seasons in our life when temptation is just stronger. Uh, for me, I find that my, my time of difficulty is when I'm emotionally tired. Temptation is a greater problem. Uh, interesting, doing some research for this, for this teaching and looking at fishing, it's been said that fish, the best time to catch fish is when they congregate to breed because their discernment goes down and they take the bait and they take the, book, they, they take the hook so much faster. Interesting. And, and so you have to ask yourself, that we know this, so why is it that we continue to find ourselves succumbing to temptation Why do we find ourselves getting hooked by temptation? And you want to write this down. We take the fly because we believe the lie. We take the fly because we believe the lie. We want the pleasure right now. We don't see the hook that's attached. And every fish that has ever been reeled into the boat didn't think it could happen to them. One day Jesus was speaking to a group of people who had believed the lie and listened to the lie so long that they could no longer even hear the truth. Notice what it says on your outline. 
Jesus says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. For you're of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But I speak to you the truth, and you do not believe me. They had listened to the lie for so long, they could no longer hear the truth. And the interesting thing about the people that Jesus is speaking to is they all profess to be believers. They were religious leaders. Verse 15, he says, And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Here's what he's saying. See, many of us are living with a sin that hasn't grown up. And so because it hasn't grown up and it hasn't become a problem yet, we don't think that it's a problem. We say, well, I'm living with this person. I'm, I'm sleeping with this person. Nothing's happened yet. It's not a problem. But that sin hasn't grown up. And, and here's how it works. When the fish takes the bait, if I could rhyme a little bit, initially everything is great. But all of a sudden, the fish realizes that something's not right. And although it was great, now something's not right, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. And when the fish tries to spit the hook, it's then that the fish finds that it's been hooked. Does that make sense? And here's what happens. The sin has grown up. It wasn't a problem early on, but now it is. And when that sin grows up that seemed like it was no problem in the very beginning, when it grows up, all of a sudden, lives are destroyed. Finances are destroyed. Spouses are destroyed. And ultimately, children are destroyed. All because we believed the lie and we took the fly. Verse 15 again, he says, And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, And when sin is accomplished or grown up, it brings forth death. It doesn't happen immediately. It's over time. It just continues to grow. And here's what happens. We find ourselves, when we're hooked, when we're hooked, we find ourselves mounted, you might say, on Satan's wall. And as we're mounted on Satan's wall and everybody knows that we're hooked, we continue to listen to Satan's lies. And here's what he says. He says, you're hooked. You're here. God will never forgive you. God can never use you again. God no longer has a plan for your life. And so, since you're hooked and you're right here on my wall, you might as well just stay on this wall. And we find ourselves trapped, hooked, and mounted on Satan's wall. That's why James says in verse 16, as it relates to temptation, as he pleads, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, when he says, do not be deceived, he's simply saying, when the bait comes, you don't see the hook, but the hook's still there. But you notice he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is not a scolding half-brother of Jesus, writer of the New Testament. This is a loving believer imploring other believers, don't go down that path. You don't see the hook that's attached to that bait. 
Well, so then the question is, how do you not get caught? A couple of things. James is going to tell us that it really comes down to an issue of spiritual maturity. Probably the best way I have to describe this is my, my mom lives on a lake in Winter Haven, and so we go up there once a month and we spend the day, and, and in Winter Haven, living on a lake, she has, she has this um, dock on the back of her house. So we take our kids up, and off they go, off to fish on Grandma's dock. They all have their little Barbies and SpongeBob fishing poles, and they go off to, to, to fish. And what I've noticed as we fish is that as we put, put the hooks in the water, it's the little immature fish that hit the hooks all day long. Have you noticed that? The immature fish hit the hooks all day long. There are some fish that we've caught four and five times in an afternoon. They've got so many holes in their lips. We're like, could you just let it go? You know, I mean, one more time, you're not going to have any lips at all. But here's what we find. The, the immature ones hit the hook all the time. But the bigger fish, the more mature, they don't always hit the hook all the time. They're a little harder to catch. So the question is, James would say, my goal is to help you become a big fish spiritually. So how do you become a big fish spiritually? Well, the only way is simply you're going to have to let some of the flies go by because some of those flies have hooks in them. Because if you take the hook and you take the hook, you're going to get caught. Does that make sense? James doesn't give us a list of what to do to avoid temptation, but here's what he does. James, in this, will give us a new way of thinking, a new way of thinking about God. Because James realizes that the way that you think about God determines how you think about temptation. Notice there in your outline, verse 17, he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, here's the first thing you need to write down. James says in the time of temptation, you need to remember the goodness of God. Once again, James, verse 17, he says, every good thing, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Paul, or, or Jeremiah would say it like this there in your outline. Jeremiah says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I don't know how it is at your house, but as you know, at our house, we have these seven kids that are running around, and I'm convinced that my kids wake up in the morning and they have one thing on their mind. They've decided that today is going to be a nonstop suicide mission. (laughs) Is that pretty much how it goes at your house too? And, and so I walk down the hall, and I find my two-year-old has a bobby pin trying to stick it in the light socket, or trying to stick it in the electrical, in, in the electrical socket. And I'm like, no, don't do that. And they look at me as though I'm trying to ruin their fun. I'm trying to ruin their life. Now, am I the only parent who's ever gone through this? Now, this week, this week we were out in, in the front of our house, and we have this long driveway. It's made of concrete. And here's the rule. All the kids can go to the very end of the, uh, of the concrete, the very end of the driveway, but you can't step off the driveway. So that's the rule. Everybody knows the rule. There's no confusion. So Avery Joy, two and a half years of age, heads down to the end of the driveway. She stops. She sees her sisters, Hannah and Emma. She turns around. She's going to impress them greatly. And so she decides, I'm just going to put one foot over the side. 
Now what she doesn't see is that daddy has just seen that. So she turns and she sees that daddy has seen it. She pulls her, she pulls her foot back. She looks at me and she starts screaming, I don't want a spanking. <laughs> well, what comes next can only be described as insurmountable pain and anguish as she gets the due consequence of her behavior. Well, we're walking at that point back up to the house, and she's a few feet away from me, and she looks at me, and she points at me, and she says, Bad Daddy, you're mean, like that. To which she found out that we don't say that in our family, so it was a bad day all around. Now, now here's the thing with Avery. I'm not trying to ruin her fun. I just know at the end of the driveway, there's cars. And so it's not that I want to ruin her life. I want to save her life. I want, I, but, but in order to save her life, there's a few things that I've got to say no to because you see, when you're two and a half, you're not ready to run around in the street. Would you agree on that? And so God would say, in the time of temptation, you need to remember the goodness of God. You see, he's saying that my intention towards you is always good. It's always good. I always want your best. I'm not trying to ruin your life. I'm trying to save your life from a lot of pain. So that would be the first thing. And then number two, the next way of thinking would simply be to remember that God never changes. God never changes. Notice verse 17. I'll read it from the beginning. He says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is No variation, underline that, or shifting shadow. What's he saying? Simply saying, I'm God, and I don't change. In Malachi, it was said like this there in your outline. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. But here's what we do. We come before God, and we say, God, I know that you wrote this 2,000 years ago, and that was your perspective 2,000 years ago, but society's changed. This is 2009, and so maybe it's okay now. He says, you need to know two things. First of all, my intention towards you is always good. My intention towards you is always good, and I never change. That is, if I said don't do that 2,000 years ago, I still mean it today. Not to ruin your life, but to save your life. Make sense? Verse 18. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, maybe you've been caught, but I want you to be one of the first fruits of my creatures. That is, I want you to not be a trophy on Satan's wall, but I want you to be a trophy on my wall. At this point, I'm going to ask my wife, Cheryl, to come forward. And if you're here today and you find yourself, as we've talked about temptation and being caught, this is my lovely wife, Cheryl. If you find yourself here today, maybe you've been tempted and you've found yourself in that temptation and you've been caught. And you're thinking, I'm done. I'm finished. This is is the end of my life. we've, We've... prayed about this, whether to just come up and tell the story and, and uh, what God has done in Cheryl's life and in our lives and, and his plan. So Cheryl, just take a couple of moments and share with us. Good morning. You may see me here with all of these little children around me, but it, always, it wasn't always that way. 
I wasn't born a pastor's wife. I wasn't born the child of a um, pastor. I didn't grow up in a godly home. And my parents divorced when I was nine years old. And I was kind of left at that point to figure things out on my own. And so I looked to my peers and I looked to the television for direction. Two great influences. So instead of having a sweet 16th birthday party, the week of my 16th birthday, I was having an abortion. And I hid this from my family, and so in that time I felt very alone and very afraid. And it was not a sweet 16, to say the least. Yet life went on, and by age 17 I was living completely on my own, and yet found myself once again pregnant soon after my 18th birthday. And I chose to marry the father, a choice which ended three years later. So here I was at age 22, alone, divorced, um, with a three-year-old child, an 11th grade education, and no real hope for a future. And I felt that my life was finished. I felt like, it's done. There's really not any hope. And I was ashamed of my past, filled with abortion and divorce, and I was only 22 years old. How does that happen? And I felt as though I had become a trophy on Satan's wall, that he had stole and robbed me of any hope of a future, and that my life was over. I mean, where do you go from there? And then I was invited to church. And I went to church, and some very kind and godly people reached out to me. And for the first time, I felt valuable to God. And I started going to church, and I, and I started growing, and the Lord gave me that promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I had hope. As I heard that promise and I received that promise, I had hope that God could do something with my life, that he could give me another chance on a very different path. You see, I realized that I was the result of my choices. And with God's help, I could make some new choices. And I got excited about my future because I figured, you know what? Come what may, God is in my future. And regardless of what happens, Satan now has to take me off his wall of trophies. And here's what God did. He gave me a promise for the hope of a future if I would begin to follow him. And here's three things I learned. First, I learned when God directs me, he has my whole life in mind, not just my current situation. I've learned, as the Apostle Paul said, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. My past is my past, but it's no longer my identity. And finally, I came to the place where I realized that the wisdom that I had for my life was not working. And I needed to choose to follow his wisdom. I needed to seek him for his wisdom in every area of my life. See, many of you have heard my story and what God's done in my life. And... Um, but this is what God also did in Cheryl's life. And God had a plan for Cheryl and ultimately a plan for us. But there came a point where she, all of us, had to make that decision. God, I'm going to follow you. 
And when you make that decision, even if you've been hooked and you think you're mounted on Satan's wall, when you make that decision to follow him, here's the last point and you need to get because this is the truth, that for the believer, Satan has to practice catch and release. He can't hold you there. And here's the promise. The Bible says there in your outline, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So God has set us free. Then he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you're here today and you find that you've become a trophy on the wrong wall, here's what we'd want to share with you today. If you decide to follow him, he promises to step into your life. Certainly to, to forgive your past, but to give you a compelling and effective and fulfilling future. Paul says, leaving the past behind, I press on. God wants to do great things in your future. The past is forgiven, and Satan can't hold you. So as we close in prayer, here's our hope today. First of all, if that's you and you find yourself hooked, just know that there's hope. Satan does not have you so hooked that God can't step into your situation and begin to rearrange your whole life and your whole future. There's hope. The first thing, if you're not a believer, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, that's the first step. You simply say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. From this day forward, I'm going to follow you. But if you're a believer you still can find yourself hooked at some times. We'd all agree on that, wouldn't we? We need to simply come to him and say, God, I've been hooked. I've become a trophy on the wrong wall. I'm following you, and I'm asking you to step in, forgive my past, no longer defines me. I'm no longer defined by my past, but I want you to now begin working to give me an effective and fulfilling and very wonderful future and pray for you. Father, we're here today, and Lord, as, as um, we've just shared, Lord, we know that in this room, there are those who feel that they're hooked and that their life is over, and that there's nothing you can do to rearrange their whole world. And Lord, you've brought them here today to hear this, that you're not finished, that there's a compelling there's a fulfilling future and that you have a plan from this day. And Lord, for those who are here who've never invited you into their lives, Father, we just turn to you and say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and wash me clean. I'm going forward to follow your wisdom, so I ask that you lead me. Lord, we know that your word promises that if we ask you that, that your word tells us that you absolutely will come in, forgive, and begin working as we follow you. And then, Lord, for some of us, many of us probably who, finding ourselves hooked, we realize that we need to just come to you and say, Father, you see the situation. I can't, I can't sugarcoat it. I can't fake it. I'm just, you see it. And Lord, here's what I'm asking. 
Lord, take me off that wrong wall and begin working in my life to put me on the right wall. Lord, I can't change the past, but I know that you can change my future. And so right now, I'm trusting you, and I'm coming back. Lord, we know that for those of us who pray that prayer today, that you are stepping in right now in the middle of our circumstance or situation, and you're going to begin to rework our lives, and that we will become a trophy on your wall, used of you greatly, to accomplish great things in you and you accomplishing great things in us. Be with us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.